Welcome to Network, where we teach pastors how to more effectively cast the net of the gospel. I'm Scott Smith, your host, and this month we have something very special for you. We just completed our 2016 Statewide Evangelism Conference held at Piedmont Church in Marietta, and it was absolutely outstanding. Multiple times over the course of two days, the altar was full of pastors praying and crying out to God to mobilize them and their churches to reach more in their cities, in their towns, in their communities. It was a very moving time. And one of the messages brought made a huge impact on the audience. As a matter of fact, our vice president of evangelism, Larry Wynn, said that it was the most outstanding, impactful, evangelistic message he'd heard in 15 years. That message was entitled, How to Find Missing Persons. And it was brought by Dr. James Merritt. Now, Dr. Merritt is no stranger to most Georgia Baptists. Uh, he was formerly the president of the Southern Baptist Convention. He's been a leading uh, baptizer in our state as far as the churches that he's led. And God has just got a hold of his heart in a fresh way. But one of the things that we saw and heard in that message that was notable to many that were that were buzzing about it is how relevant the message was. And we want to share that message with you. Now, normally, we don't make these messages available on recordings except to those who attend. But this message was so impactful, uh, especially in the closing illustration, so relevant to our times in terms of you and myself and the people that we lead sharing the gospel in this current cultural context. I want you to listen with open heart and mind now to the full-length message How to Find Missing Persons by Dr. James Merritt. Well, thank you so much uh, for the uh, video introduction. Thank you for being here. It's great to be back with Georgia Baptist and great to be back here. Dr. Reichard knows this, a lot of memories in this church for me. I've not been at this church in 42 years. I was the first student pastor this church ever had. And I served with a great pastor named Cliff Duvall. If you don't know Brother Cliff, he was a legend. He taught me how to win souls. I was, in fact, I was over in the chapel, which was the old worship center, uh, Ike, and uh, I called Brother Cliff while I was over there just to kind of reminisce with him, and I want to thank uh, my, one of my best buddies in the world. In fact, two of them sitting right there, Dr. Wynn and Dr. Reichert, two of the best friends I have, two of the finest men I know, and I want to thank you, Dr. Reichert, and your church for the great job you've done in hosting uh, this conference. Now, the clock's already started, so let me just tell you this. I've got a, I want to promote uh, for a moment the crusade, okay? So this does not count against my time. Um, my church is all in on this crusade. Let me tell you about Greg Laurie. Some of you don't know Greg Laurie. I preached for Greg four or five times in his church. I've been with him. I was with him and been with him since his son died. Greg Laurie is the real deal. And it, you don't, do not want to miss the crusade that is coming here in September. We'd like to invite all of you who are pastors to be at one of these pastor information meetings, and we'll, they'll only last for an hour, and I promise you they won't be boring. We need every pastor that's willing to get involved in this meeting. So let me just real quickly, I'm going to tell you when these meetings are going to take place, where they're going to be. If you hear your city or somewhere where you could go, jot down the date, jot down the church, and jot down the time, and please, pastor, don't send the youth pastor. You need to come and be a part of the meeting. The me- one meeting is going to be held in my church. I'm going to be at that meeting, all right? So here we go. Lilburn, Georgia, Tuesday, uh, April the 26th at 10 o'clock, Lilburn, Georgia, at Calvary Chapel, Stone Mountain, Suwanee, 
at Free Chapel Gwinnett. That's Jensen Franklin, a friend of mine. We'll be there Tuesday, April the 26th at 2 o'clock. Wednesday, April the 27th in Decatur. It will be at the Tabernacle, 10 o'clock. Wednesday, April the 27th, it will be at 12 Stone Church in Lawrenceville, if you're there, at 2 o'clock. Thursday, April the 28th, it will be at First Baptist Woodstock with our buddy up there, Johnny, at 10 o'clock. Then it will be at my church, Cross Point Church, at 2 o'clock on Thursday the 28th. And then at Grace Fellowship in Cumming, Georgia, uh, April the 28th at 7 o'clock. So if you heard your town or your city thereby, I, I want you to make sure that you come and you get there. Well, again, thank you for letting me be here. Uh, I'm so excited. I'm so pumped. I want to thank my buddy Randy Mullinax for giving the invitation. Randy and his sweet wife are a member of our church. I told Randy he is the best absentee member I've ever had in my entire ministry. So it really is great to uh, be with you. I have to be honest, I'm so excited. I've got so much to say. I kind of feel like a mosquito in a nudist camp. I don't know where to start. Um, I don't know if you're into philosophy or not. I, I love philosophy and I love philosophers, always have. And for my money, I don't know who your favorite philosopher is, in my money, for my money, the most brilliant philosopher in history is Yogi Berra. Nobody had the ability to cut through stuff and see things like Yogi. And I was on a Bible cruise one time, Randy. I was with Dr. Stanley and Dr. Rogers and some other guys. Ike, you've done those before. And I was preaching and I was on the cruise ship. And uh, after the message was over, this man's car was walking up to me. And I recognized him 20 yards away. When he got up to me, I looked at him and I said, you're Bobby Richardson. Now, if you don't know who Bobby Richardson is or was, he played second base for the New York Yankees. And in the 1960 World Series, he is one of the only men who ever won the Most Valuable Player Award, even though they lost the World Series. He said, how in the world do you know who I am? I said, well, I grew up with you. I grew up with Yogi and Mickey and Roger and Elston. I used to watch the Yankee game of the week. And I grew up with you. I said, I've always been a lifelong Yankees fan. And plus, and this is a true story. You can look it up. Babe Ruth married my wife, my dad's first cousin. His second wife was my dad's first cousin. So I said, man, it's in the family. So I'm, I'm a big Yankees fan. So he said, well, James, would you like to have dinner with me and Betsy tonight? And we'll talk baseball. I said, Ben, I would love it. Larry, I spent three hours of the best years of my life, and all we did was just talk Yankee baseball. So we got to talking about Yogi, God rest his soul. We got talking about Yogi. Yogi loved Bobby. Yogi was a, was a Catholic, not sure he was a believer. But he loved Bobby because Bobby loved Jesus and he was intrigued by Bobby's faith. So I said, Bobby, I said, tell me, tell me a story about Yogi that maybe a lot of people don't know. And he told me quite a few. And I'll just tell you one because it does kind of relate to what we're going to talk about tonight. Yogi, uh, toward the end of his career, was playing left field. They moved him from catcher. It was too hard on his legs. And so he was playing a, a left field. His wife never went to the stadium. It was down in the Bronx. They had an apartment up uh, in, in the upper midtown there, and so she didn't like to go. She just watched the game on TV. Then she would go to bed. He, he, she was always in bed by the time Yogi got home because he wouldn't get home till 1 or 2 in the morning. Well, on this particular night, first inning, Yogi's at left field, and he's getting ready for the first pitch. And this was back in the days when streaking was really popular. And so Yogi's down here like this. Well, two people jumped out of the left field stands, and they ran, I mean, stark naked right in front of Yogi. Yogi never moved, just never moved. He just watched them as they went by. Well, he got home that, that morning about 1 o'clock, and to his surprise, his wife was still up. And he said, what are you doing up? She said, Yogi, I, I've, I've got to find out something. He said, well, what's that? He, she said, well, well these, did you see those two streakers that ran in front of you? He said, well, yes. 
He said, well, you realize they were stark naked? He said, well, yes. She said, well, I didn't get a good look at them. Were they male or female? And Yogi said, how would I know? They had bags over their head. Now, <laughs> when it comes to evangelism, so Georgia Baptist, we better get the bags out from over our head. We better get our head out of the sand because not only is the nation in trouble, and this is not a political statement, but in my opinion, the nation's in the biggest trouble it's been in my lifetime. Spiritually, culturally, morally, ethically, we are in the biggest trouble of my lifetime. So big that Greg was right. If you really think that we can, if we can just put the right person in the White House, if we can just put the right people in the House and put the right people in the Senate, if you think that's going to solve our problem, you don't understand our problem. Adrian Rogers said it best. God is not only our best hope, he's our biggest threat. And what really needs to happen, I think as much as anything else, is we need to get on our knees and pray for our nation and pray for our leaders, but we need to get off our knees and get on our feet and get back to winning people to Jesus Christ. And I'm not talking just to lay people. I'm talking to pastors. So I've said all of that to say, I want to talk to you tonight about the topic, come one, come all. I want to tell you about the most exclusive club in the entire world. There's only one qualification that will gain you entrance into this club. Now, amazingly, it's not money. Carlos Slim Hilo is the richest person in the world. His net worth is $70.6 billion. Ike's worth about half of that. All right, $70.6 billion. Bill Gates is the richest person in America. Net worth, $60.4 billion. Neither man can buy his way into this club. It's not fame. The two most famous people in the world, the most recognizable faces are Muhammad Ali and Tiger Woods. Neither one could get into this club. It's not popularity. According to Twitter, the three most popular people on the planet are Lady Gaga, Justin Bieber, and Katy Perry. Now, that ought to tell you what trouble we're in right there, all right? None of them can get into this club. It's not influence. Surveys show that the three most influential people of the 21st century were Steve Jobs, Oprah Winfrey, and Mark Zuckerberg, the founder of Facebook. None of them can get into this club. The most exclusive club in the world only has five living members. And there's only one, only one qualification that will get you into this club. There's only one requirement. You know what that requirement is? All you got to have is a title. And that title is the President of the United States. The most exclusive club in the world is known as the President's Club. I recently read a book. If you haven't read it, I recommend you get it. It's a fascinating read. It's called The President's Club. And it recounts these fascinating stories about how former and current presidents interact together. So I'm reading this book, and Randy, I'm thinking about how exclusive this club is and, and, and what a tremendous privilege it would be to be in that club. And then all of a sudden it hit me, there is another club far more fascinating, far more exciting, far more important. And here's the good news. It is not the most exclusive club in the world. It is the most inclusive world club in the world and that is the club that is made up of followers of Jesus and the only qualification you've got to have to be a candidate to join this club is simply to be a missing person 
Say, James, what do you mean by a missing person? A missing person is anyone who is far from God, but they're just one invitation away to come near to God. As I was on my way over here, my phone went off. This big alarm went off. I knew what it was. I was coming over here with my executive pastor. He got the same alarm. I immediately, I said, Larry, that is an amber alert. Now, you know what an amber alert is, right? An amber alert is, is, is an alert that comes on when some child has been abducted or some child has gone missing. I want you to hear me clearly. There is an amber alert in heaven on every person that does not know Jesus Christ. There's an amber alert on every person that is far from God. Jesus even said, the reason why I left heaven, the reason why I came to earth was to find and rescue missing persons. He said in Luke 19.10, he said, the Son of Man has come to seek and to save the lost. Now, I want to tell you a story tonight, very familiar story, about a time when Jesus had already found his first missing persons. They were four fishermen, you know them, Peter, Peter, Andrew, James, and John. He invited them to come and to follow him, and they did. And the moment they followed him, he said, okay, guys, let me tell you why I want you to follow me. I'm going to teach you one thing if you don't learn anything else. From now on, you are quitting your job of, follow, of fishing for fish. Now I'm going to teach you to fish for people. So, that raises a question. So James, what kind of missing persons am I to be looking for? What kind of fish are we to go after? I've heard preachers preach on this text so many times. You know, Jesus said, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. Well, what kind of men and what kind of women are we to be fishing for? Now, what these disciples were about to learn absolutely shocked their system to the core. And this is the key takeaway. This is what I want you to take out the door tonight. You ready? Everybody is invited to follow Jesus, and anybody can follow Jesus. Everybody's invited, and anybody can follow. So here's what we're going to do tonight. We're going to look at how Jesus told his new friends what they were to do, and how he then showed them how to do it. Because the same way Jesus told them to do it is still the same way that Jesus tells us to do it. And by the way, anything Jesus ever tells you to do, if you'll do it the way he tells you to do it, you cannot fail. So, what do we learn tonight? You brought a copy of God's Word. You brought a copy of the Bible. Let me tell you what that means. It doesn't mean you're holier than anybody else. It means you're over the age of 50. So, if you're over the age of 50, turn to your Bibles. If you're under the age of 40, turn to your iPad. Turn to your smartphone. Turn to whatever, you know, gadgets you brought. And I want you to turn to the fifth chapter of the Gospel of Luke. Luke chapter 5. I want to say three quick things to us tonight. You ready? Number one. We are to ask everyone to follow Jesus. We're to ask everyone to follow Jesus. I'm in Luke 5, verse 27. After this, that is, after he called these four fishermen, he went out and he saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, follow me. Now, I've been to Israel. I'm about to go to Israel again. I've been to Israel, I think this is my 23rd trip I've been to Israel. I love Israel. I love the Holy Land. I love to go. I love to take people. 
But, and one of the reasons why is because when I go to Israel, Ike, my mind always goes back 2,000 years ago. You can just see these sights. The, the, the smell of the old days come alive. The Bible just leaps a fire in your hand. And so I got to thinking about when I was over there not long on another trip. Here's these disciples, and they're just taking a nice little stroll on a beautiful day. There is no telling how many times they had passed by this tax booth. And so, you know, they're, they're just walking by, and they're not even paying any attention to this guy. They've seen him a thousand times. But unlike this, Jesus stops and he turns his head and he sees Levi. Now, the Greek word there for Saul doesn't just mean to glance. It's a very strong word. It literally means to look someone dead in the eye and stare at them. In other words, as they're walking by, they kept walking. Jesus stops and he starts looking at this tax collector. He doesn't take his eyes off of him. just looks him up and down. Now, have you ever felt like somebody was staring at you? You ever had that feeling? You know what's even more uncomfortable? Is when you feel like somebody is staring at you and you turn around and they are, okay? Well, Jesus is staring, staring at this guy. Now, by this time, Jesus is known by everybody. His fame is spreading rapidly and there's no question that Levi knew who this man was. He knew who Jesus was. Then Jesus opens his mouth and he said the very last thing that this text collector ever thought he would hear Jesus ever say to him. He looks at Levi and he says, follow me. Excuse me? Yeah, follow me. I I'm asking you to become a disciple. Now, we don't understand some of us what the word disciple means because back, we, we think a disciple means a, a, a pupil in a school that learns from the teacher. That's not what it meant back then. It doesn't mean that. Back in the day, it meant an apprentice. And a, a disciple was not just someone that learned a skill. He learned a way of life. That's why Jesus didn't look at him and say, learn from me. He didn't look at him and say, talk to me. He didn't even look at him and say, listen to me. He said, I want you to follow me. In other words, here's what Jesus was saying to this tax collector. Son, I'm not interested in just trying to change the way you think. I want to change the way you live. I'm not trying to change your head. I'm trying to change your heart. Now, there was something even more amazing both to Levi and those disciples. Back, Jesus was considered a rabbi. They called him rabbi. Now, if we know this or not, back in the day, rabbis never asked students to become their disciples. It worked the other way around. Students would ask rabbis if they would become their disciples. Well, even if you ask a rabbi, guess what you had to do? You had to apply. You had to meet certain standards before you would even be considered. So in effect, you had to have a certain GPA. You had to have a good transcript. You had to have the right grades. You had to have an impressive knowledge of the first five books of the law. And then after all of that, you might be asked to become a disciple. And the selection process was intense. It was meticulous. It was mainstaking. As a matter of fact, rabbis wouldn't let just anyone join them. You know why? Because the reputation of the rabbi depended upon the quality of the disciples. So back in that day, every rabbi school was not University of Florida. It was Harvard. Okay. Oh, uh, if you're a Florida Gator, get saved. Okay, now listen. <laughs> Jesus, Jesus did something no rabbi had ever done or would ever think about doing. 
Instead of waiting on him to ask if he could follow him, Jesus instead invites him to follow him. No application, don't need to fill out any papers, don't need to sign anything, don't care whether you're educated or not, don't care whether you can read and write, just invitation. Now, though the disciples didn't get it at the time, they would later. What Jesus was doing with, with Levi was exactly what he wanted them to do with others. And what Jesus did for Levi is still after 2,000 years what he wants us to do for others. You know, Calvin Coolidge once famously said, the business of America is business. Well, I want to tell you the business of the church and the business of every follower of Christ is people and specifically missing people who need to be found. So our job is, as we just go about our daily life, going to the grocery store, going to the doctor, cutting our grass, playing golf, our job is to be looking for missing persons and inviting them to Jesus. Why? Because everybody should be invited to follow Jesus and anybody can follow Jesus. That's our number one job. Now, if that was not enough to shock these four guys, and they're already got their mouth open, the next lesson just blew them up. Because not only are we to ask people to follow Jesus, now watch this, we are to accept anyone willing to follow Jesus. We're to accept anyone willing. Now watch this, the first command that Jesus ever gave to anyone was the simplest command he ever gave in his life, which was, follow me. Now, we've already seen how unusual the method was because, again, he did it backwards. Hey, you're not going to ask me to follow me. I'm going to ask you to follow me. But now what he does is even more shocking because, see, what was doubly shocking to these disciples wasn't just how he invited this guy. It was who this guy was. Verse 27, after this, he went out. He saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax booth. Now, it was radical enough that Jesus chose his disciples rather than them choosing him. But if you ever thought about this, go back and look at the list of the guys that Jesus chose to be his disciples. None of them would have made the Time Magazine top 100 list. There wasn't a biblical scholar among them. There wasn't one strong leader among them. There wasn't a John Maxwell among them. There were no movers. There were no shakers. Not one of those 12 would have been on anybody. I got to have that guy list just a bunch of poor fishermen, just a bunch of nobodies. Now, wait a minute. Of all the missing persons Jesus could invite, if you'd said to somebody, if you'd been talking to Peter and you said, Peter, you like to bet? Peter said, yeah, I like to bet. I'll bet you 50 shekels. There's one guy he will never invite. Well, who do you think? Well, he'll never invite Levi. I'll put my money on Levi. You say, why? He was a tax collector. He worked for the Roman government. Now, let me explain how, what this means. The Roman government collected their taxes through a system called tax farming. Here's what they did. They divided all of Palestine up into districts. And every district had a fixed tax figure that they had to pay. And they would sell the right to collect those taxes to the highest bidder. So, you know, Larry comes along and Ike comes along and they're bidding and so he bids the highest and so I've got the power and I say, okay, Larry, you win Gwinnett County, Cobb County, that's your, that's your district, so you're over all that district, you're going to collect all those taxes. Now, there were two categories of taxes people had to pay. There was direct taxes, otherwise known as fixed taxes, that included the poll tax. You ready for this? You know what the poll tax was? You had to pay a tax just for, just for being alive. A lot of things haven't changed, have they? All right. 
just for being alive. There was the ground tax. That required one-tenth of all the grain, all the wine, all the oil that farmers produced. There was the income tax. Now, they got a break. It was only 1% of everything you earned. Well, where tax collectors made their money was not in the direct taxes. That all went to the government. Where the tax collector made their money was in indirect taxes. There were duties and tolls that allowed the tax collectors to commit highway robbery. Because what the government said was, if you'll get our share, if you'll get our portion, if you'll get what's coming to us, you can tax anybody, you can tax anything you want to do. You've got unlimited authority. You've got a blank check. So you could tax people for using a road. You could tax imports and exports. You could tax food. You could tax fruit. You could tax wine. Listen, there was even a cart tax in which every wheel was taxed. He, you could even, listen, you could even, if you were a tax collector, if you saw you walking down the road with a letter, you could open your private letter, and if you were doing business in that letter, he could tax that. Now, the problem was he could charge whatever rate he wanted to, wanted to over and above what the government required, and then he would pocket the profit. And there was nothing anybody could do about it. You say, well, James, what if you couldn't afford to pay the taxes? Oh, that, he loved that. Because if you couldn't afford to pay the taxes, he would loan you money at exorbitant interest. And if you could not pay, he could take everything you own, sell it, and keep the money for himself. Again, not much has changed. It was the first case in history of taxation without representation. It reminds me, if you've heard of this, this is a true story. There was a little boy that wanted $10. He prayed for two weeks for God to give him $2 and nothing happened. So he decides to write God a letter requesting the $10. So when the postal authorities received the letter, he addressed it to God, USA. When they opened the letter and read it, and this kid's asking God for $10, they decided to send the letter on to President Clinton. Well, Clinton was so impressed, he was so touched, he was so amused that he told his secretary, send that little boy a $5 bill because he thought, you know, that'd be a, a lot of money to a little boy like that. So the little boy was delighted to get the $5 and he sat down and he wrote a thank you note to God and this is what he wrote. Listen to this. Dear God, thank you very much for sending me the money. However, I noticed that for some reason you had to send it to Washington, D.C. and as usual, they deducted half of it. Now... <laughs> It won't surprise you, therefore, that the most despised, hated class of people in all of Israel were tax collectors. They were considered traitors. As a matter of fact, do you know what the favorite name they used for these guys? Blood suckers. So in short, Levi was a missing person that nobody missed except Jesus. And Jesus said, Levi, I know you think nobody misses you, but I miss you. I know you think everybody hates you. Levi, I don't. Let me tell you how despised they were. Tax collectors were so, so despised, they were barred from the synagogues. You couldn't even go to church. In other words, they were excommunicated. Listen, they could not be witnesses in the court of law because their word was considered useless. They were considered on the same level as robbers, murderers, pimps, and prostitutes. They were never invited to the neighborhood cookouts. They never got on the high school reunion list. Nobody wanted to have anything to do with them. Let me tell you what's worse about Levi. Most probably his own parents had disowned this guy. He was the black sheep of the family. You say, well, what makes you think that? We believe that because of his name. His name was Levi. 
great name. Levi's parents took his name from the third son of Jacob who had fathered the Israelite tribe of Levi. Levi. Levi was the priestly tribe. Evidently, from the time that little boy drew his first breath, his parents had high hopes for them. him. They said, we want you to serve the Lord. We want you to be a priest. We want you to be a spiritual leader in our country. We want you to go to Bible college. We want you to go to seminary. So we're going to name you Levi. It's very likely his father and his grandfather and his great-grandfather were all priests, and they expected him to fall in line and do what they did. And for any Jew to abandon his heritage to become a Roman tax collector was one thing. But for a member of the tribe of Levi to do that, it was an abomination. So while everybody else would walk by and curse him and spit at him and threaten him, Jesus comes along and he says the very same thing he said to Andrew and Peter and James and John. Follow me. Now those disciples are sitting there going, wait a minute. I get you asking us to follow you. We come from devout Jewish families. We work hard. We make an honest living. We've never robbed anybody. We've never stolen anything. We've never taken a man's home. And we're faithful attenders of the synagogue. And you're asking a traitor to follow you? Now, this gets more mind-boggling because Jesus' choice of followers gets even more amazing because in the list of the 12 disciples we find in the next chapter, listen to what we read here. And Simon, who was called the Zealot. Simon the Zealot. He's totally on the other end of the spectrum from Levi. Simon was a freedom fighter. He was a terrorist. Levi was a friend. He was a buddy. He was the establishment guy of the Roman Empire. Simon says, I want to overthrow the Roman Empire. I can't stand these guys. I want them out of our nation and out of our country. Now, here's how bad it was. If you really wanted Levi taken out, if you really wanted to hire a hitman to kill Levi, Simon was your guy. He's the guy. As a matter of fact, he would have done it for nothing. He would have paid you for the privilege. I mean, he hated Levi. So here's what you've got now. In this ragtag bunch of followers of Jesus now, you've got a tax collector on one hand and a terrorist on the other hand. And not only does Jesus ask the least likely and the least lovely to follow him, here's the amazing thing about Jesus. You ready for this? He has a way of bringing them together. Can you just imagine this conversation? Uh, Simon, I just want to make sure everybody knows who you are. You're the new guy on the block. So Simon, let me get this straight. You're, You're a zealot? Yes, sir. And you're a freedom fighter? Yes. And you're a terrorist? Yes. You despise Romans? Yes. You despise collaborators? Yes. I'll bet you really hate tax collectors. Oh, I can't, oh, I can't, hate them. Will you follow me? Yes, Lord. So, Levi, you're the collaborator? Yes, sir. You're, you're a tax collector? Yes, sir. You're a traitor? Yes, sir. You don't like this guy, do you? No, sir. Will you follow me? Yes, Lord. Great. Simon, you're rooming with Levi. (laughs) I want to ask you a question. Number one, how could something like that happen? How in the world could something like that happen? You know how it can happen? 
Because everyone's invited to follow Jesus, and anybody can follow Jesus. And by the way, Larry, you said something to me, and I'm going to take a chance and say, you know, they didn't hire me, they can't fire me, right? I want to just step out on a limb here a little bit. If those two guys can come together, why can't we all in the Georgia Baptist Convention come together? Why can't we all put aside some of these petty political differences that are out there and let's just focus on what we agree on and let's just focus on people who are lost and let's just focus on winning people to Christ because may I be honest with you, lost people really don't care about some of the things we argue about. I hate to break the news to you, but they really don't care. You know, when I was president of the Southern Baptist Convention, I can honestly say this, I never got a big, I mean, I never really got over it. I mean, I couldn't believe, I was born in Oakwood, Georgia. You know where Oakwood is? Right down the road from Flowery Branch. I, I, I was Opie Taylor. And I get elected to be president of the Southern Baptist Convention. The only time that ever went to my head, the only time, true story, I land in Beijing, China. I'm on a mission trip for the SBC, and I land in Beijing, China. And we, man, that plane hit the ground, and this thought hit me, wow, you are the president of the Southern Baptist Convention, and you just landed in Beijing, China. And the next thought that came to me, and I know it was the Spirit of God, said, yes, and a billion Chinese don't know, and they don't care. We need to ask people to follow Jesus. We need to accept anyone who is willing to follow Jesus. Now, it's easy to amen the first two-thirds of this message. Okay, now it gets hard. Because the third thing that Jesus teaches us to do is we too are to associate with those who don't follow Jesus. We are to associate with those who don't follow. Now, listen. What happens next in the story to me is even more incredible to me than Levi the tax collector leaving this well-paying job and Simon rooming with him and follow Jesus. Now listen to verse 29. And Levi made him a great feast in his house and there was a large company of tax collectors and others reclining at table with them. Who, he's, you know, evidently Jesus said to Simon, Simon, do you mind throwing a party? I mean, you got the, you know, you, Levi, you've got the money. Could you mind? No, Lord, I'd be glad to do it. And so the disciples were probably saying, well, at least something good came out of this. We're going to a barbecue. We're going to have steak. We're going to baked potato. We're going to have apple pie. Man, it's going to be great. And can you just imagine those disciples going, dear God, now we're surrounded by these guys. You say, well, why did he do that? They were his buddies. Because you know who missing persons hang out with? Other missing persons. That's all he knew. He didn't know anybody else. So he throws a finding missing persons party. Because when you accept the call to follow Jesus, listen to me, when you accept the call to follow Jesus, Jesus does not call us to isolation. He calls us to association. He does not call us to get in our little holy huddles in our small groups in our church and think we've done him a great big favor. He calls us to get out of our comfort zone, to get out of our little spiritual womb and spiritual cocoon and go out there and find people and associate with people who don't know Jesus. You're not to avoid missing persons. You are to go finding them and fishing them for them and inviting them to follow Jesus. So there's this big party and it's going on with the most despised low-life people in all of Israel and Jesus is right in the middle of it. You know, someone has observed People who are nothing like Jesus, like Jesus. And Jesus like people who are nothing like him. And I'll tell you why it is so important that we associate with missing persons and we lovingly, gently, and naturally introduce them to Jesus. Can I tell you why? Here's why. Because when people who are far from God 
truly meet the Son of God, they want to draw near to God. They want to draw near to God. Now, what's this? You ready? Buckle your seatbelt. There was one crowd that just didn't like any of this at all. And it was the church-going crowd. It was the religious crowd. It was the Sunday school teachers and the deacons and the choir members and the piano player and the ushers and the greeters and all the muckety-mucks that think, man, church is the place where it really happens. So listen to what happens, verse 30. And the Pharisees and their scribes grumbled at his disciples saying, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and Sinners. Now, you know who the Pharisees and the scribes are, right? If you read the story, they're the exact opposite of the tax collector. They are the exact opposite of the zealots. They are exact opposite of the sinners. Religious, churchgoers, pew sitters, they dot every religious eye, they cross every religious tree, a T, and they felt that made them better than anyone else. I'm going to be very transparent. I battled that attitude myself. There was a day in my own life and my own ministry that I would look down at certain people and I'd say, I'm sure glad I don't do what you do. And I'm sure glad I don't live like you live. And I'm sure glad I'm not a sinner like you. I used to have that mindset. And you know what I used to think? The best path and the right thing to do was to never cross paths with them. And then I finally woke up there and realized not only am I to cross paths with them, I need to go out of my way to cross paths with them. I need to literally go hunting for them. So listen to Jesus' response. It's classic. And Jesus answered them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Now this is the amazing thing. Are you ready? And by the way, pastor, you got people like this in your church. Our churches are filled with people who know how to say the right thing. We want our church to grow, but they really don't. Because they don't want to pay the price for the church to grow. Yeah, I want my church to grow, but I don't want a homosexual walking through the door. I don't want a guy with tattoos walking through the door. I don't want a guy with a tank top and shorts walking through the door, but I want my church to grow. A pox on your house. Here's the amazing thing. These religious fanatics were farther from God than the people they thought were farthest from God. It's an amazing thing. See, there are only two kinds of people in this story, just like the only two kinds of people in this world. There were the people who thought Jesus was too good for them. And there were the people that thought they were too good for Jesus. The first group became followers. The second group became critics. Let me tell you something. There's only one qualification to become a follower of Jesus. <laughs> just realize you're a sinner in need of a Savior. And you're in. You're in. That's all you've got to do. Listen, if you're not a sinner, think about this. If you're not a sinner, you don't need to follow Jesus because you don't need Jesus. Listen, there are only two kinds of people in this world. Only two. You ready? People who know they need a Savior and people who think they don't. You show me any person who's not a believer. It can be a philosopher. It can be an agnostic. It can be an atheist. It can be a PhD from MIT. It doesn't matter to me. When you get down to the bottom line, the reason why they do not believe in Jesus Christ is because they have convinced themselves they don't need a Savior. And I'm telling you, if there's one message in that book, it's this message. Everybody needs a Savior, and Jesus is that Savior. So, the bottom line is this. Who's invited, James? 
to follow Jesus. <laughs> Everybody. But, James, I have a sexual past. You're invited. I got a jail record. You're invited. I broke faith with my wife. I committed adultery. I committed adultery, but you know, against my husband. You're invited. I'm divorced. You're invited. I'm a recovering alcoholic. You're invited. I'm a pothead. I'm a porn addict. I'm a hypocrite. You're really invited. I battle same-sex attraction. You're so invited. Anybody. Should, everybody should be invited to follow Jesus, and everybody can. Now, you need to understand, and we're going to close this up. Jesus expects the same response from everybody he invites, and here's the response he expects. Watch this, Luke 5, 28. And leaving everything, he rose and followed him. Oh, you read it right. Levi lost everything when he followed Jesus. And we don't need to be afraid in this day and age in which we live of scaring people off. We need to stand up. We don't need to sugarcoat. We don't need to cut and we don't need to, you know, you know, cut and bait. You know, we don't need to do that at all. We don't need to bait and switch. What we need to do is get up and say, look, I'm gonna be honest with you. If you want to follow Jesus, it will cost you everything. But following Jesus will cost you everything, but refusing to follow Jesus will cost you more. If Levi had said, no thanks, I think I'll take the Mercedes chariot. I think I'll take the Gucci sundial. I, I, I think I'll take, you know, the leather sandals. He would have died a very rich man. But you would have never heard about him. And neither would I. And because he chose to follow Jesus, you remember what Jesus did for Levi? He changes his name. You remember what he changed his name to? Matthew. You know what the name Matthew literally means? It means gift of God. And he went on to write a book in the Bible, and people today name their sons after Matthew. Let me tell you this. The best this world has to offer you is trash compared to the worst that Jesus can give you. And I'm telling you, I'm one kid here. I, was, I didn't ask to be born in Oakwood, Georgia. I could have been born in a Muslim country. I didn't ask to be born to a Christian home. I could have been born to a, to a Hindu family. And I have never gotten over the fact, and God, I'm asking you right now in the name of Jesus, don't ever let James Merritt get over the fact, you saved me. But I wouldn't have saved me. You sent your son for me when I wouldn't have sent my son for me, and you called me to preach. I wouldn't have called me to preach. So I'll close with this. So much more I wish I could say. I want to thank you for being patient. I'll just say this, and I'm done. Several years ago, there were two ladies that visited our church. And it was very obvious that they didn't practice a heterosexual lifestyle. And this was back in the day, Larry, we had Tuesday night visitation. You remember those days? So um, kind of found out who they were. And so we were divvying up the cards. And I said to, uh, I said to our outreach person, I said, uh, pull the two cards out of those ladies. I don't need anybody else to go see them. Let me go see these two ladies. So I said, they said, who do you want to go with you? I said, I don't want anybody. Let's let me go. So I went to this house Tuesday night, knocked on the door. Blown away that I was there. Absolutely blown away. And they said, you at the right house? Yeah, I said, could I come in? Sure. One of them had a daughter, nine-year-old, beautiful little girl. I sat down on the floor and I played with that little girl for a little while and it was time for her to go to bed. And then we sat down on the couch. 
And the elephant was in the room, and I'm the kind of guy that when the elephant in the room, you just go ahead and shoot it and get it down, right? So I said, look, I said, let's, let's not beat around the bush. I said, I understand the lifestyle I believe that you're living. Am I correct? Yeah. I said, okay, let me tell you why I'm here. I didn't come here to throw a rock at you. I didn't come here to preach to you. I came here to just tell you two or three things. Number one, I love you. Number two, I don't love you nearly as much as Jesus loves you. Number three, you have come to the right church. I said, now there are a lot of churches out there. I can tell you where some of them are, and they'll tell you what you're doing is okay. That's the way God made you. You're cool. You're good to go. We don't do that. I love you enough to tell you the truth of God's word. I said, now here's the promise I'm going to make to you. If you continue to come to our church, you will be treated with respect. You will be treated with kindness. You'll be treated with decency. And if you're not, you let me know it, and I'll take care of that person. You don't have to worry about it. Number two, I'm not going to go out of my way to try to find something so I can hammer you with it. On the other hand, if it comes up, I'm not going to run away from it either. And I said, finally, if you need a pastor, I'll be your pastor. Fair enough. They started coming. Put their little girl in the nursery. They came, sit three rows back, Sunday after Sunday. Once a month, I'd go see them. Once a month. Second time I went back this time, I shared the gospel. I said, all right, you've heard it, but I want to share it with you. I went back four, four times, four months. Every time it was on a Saturday. The fourth Saturday, I went into their backyard, and they were out there playing. I, I knocked on the door, and I heard some commotion in the backyard. I went over there. I said, hey, Pastor, how you doing? Came in. So I got to not, the mother, not to the mother of the daughter, but the other lady. I got to the other lady, and she said, it's time. I said, oh, you have little faith. I said, time for what? It's, it's time for me. I want to be saved. I want to give my life to Christ. So they're standing in her backyard. I lead this lady to faith in Christ. The other lady, she's standing over there with her daughter. She's watching the whole thing. I led this lady to Christ. She comes walking over to me, and she looked at me, and she said, did she just do what I think she just did? And I said, let her tell you. She said, what did you just do? She said, I just gave my life to Jesus. And the other lady said, can I do that too? Said, Absolutely. So she prayed to receive Christ. It was unbelievable. One of the greatest soul winning experiences I've ever had in my life. So I said to them, okay, now this is where it kind of gets tough. Because in that prayer, and I always do this, I said, you, I ask you to repent of your sin. And I explained what that means. I said, now you know what that means. And this, this lady said, yeah, we're, we're not supposed to sleep together anymore. That's right. She said, well, we quit that two months ago. Really, why? Well, we just, you kept preaching love and truth. And we just got under conviction. We just finally quit sleeping together. So I baptized both those ladies the next Sunday, came forward, got baptized. And so they said to me, they said, hey, can we continue to live together? I said, no problem. I said, now here's what I think you ought to do. Leverage what God's done. Tell these neighbors that know you, go out of your way and say, look, we just want you to know we've changed. They did that. They went to their neighbors and said, we changed our lifestyle. We're not doing this anymore. I left that church, planted the church where I am now. Four years went by. I was up in my office about this pouring down rain. About 4.30 in the afternoon, my assistant, Callie, said, hey, there's a lady downstairs to see you. And, and I said, well, I'll just go down and meet her because I'm going home anyway. And I didn't really want to bring anybody up and stay a long time. So I went back down, and it was the lesbian, the former lesbian that had the daughter. I hadn't seen her in four years. I, she got up, rushed over, hugged me. I said, how in the world are you doing? How's your daughter? Oh, she's great. I said, what are you doing here? She said, started weeping. She said, 
I, I just want to thank you for coming to my home. I, I want to thank you for sharing Jesus with me. And she said, Pastor, I just wanted to tell you that not only has my life is not the same, every day I wake up knowing my life will never be the same. And I don't want it to be the same. Everybody should be invited to follow Jesus. And anybody can be invited. We just got to extend the invitation. God bless you. You've been listening to Network, a program dedicated to challenging believers to cast the net of the gospel. Connect with us at evangelismga.com. Network is a production of the Evangelism Ministries of the Georgia Baptist Convention.